Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 42. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Uptograph. And in news around here, uh, we are selling uh, a bundle. A, bu- right a bundle now. a bundle of goodness. A bundle, yeah. <laughs> uh, we've got a couple books uh, in the store, one of which is off at the printer right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other, which was released last year, is well, actually two years ago. Two years ago now is off at the printer as is well. Is off at the printer as well because <laughs> uh, that one has really picked up in sales and has yeah. perhaps at this listening has uh, sold out of our store. Yeah. It is possible. So, if it hasn't, it's close. Yeah, my my book joined a bench guide to furniture joinery. Um, if it has been on your list to get. I would, as of this listening, I would recommend racing over to the store and quick ordering it because we, no joke, have like a few boxes left. Right. Um, so we are in the process of, it's actually at the printer as I speak. It was was on press the other day. Um, so it's it's underway, but it's going to, I think it's going to be a couple months. It sounded like yeah. they were saying they're just, everything's backlogged. So um yeah, if you need to order joined, I would do it right now. Yeah, or um, you have to wait for the reprint to come in. Yeah, so we do have a, a bundle uh, with uh, my new book, which is called Worked, a bench guide to, uh, oh, wait, that's funny, a bench guide to hand tool efficiency. Mm. Um, and so we have the uh, bench guide to furniture joinery and the bench guide to hand tool efficiency. And so this new book, Worked, is is all about um, the the hand tool efficiency, as I as I'm putting it, this the way to approach the the work uh, as a, from a hand tool only perspective. Is hand tool only work actually viable? Right. Um, so that's what the the book is about. And so we're selling Worked and Joined together as a bundle for thirty five dollars. That will ship out maybe the end of July, might be August, uh, because the printer is drowning in work. Yeah. Yeah, uh, ironically, the the worked is is some of the work that the printer is working on, yeah. and uh, um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, before we get into that, we wanted to mention the Mortis and Tendon Daily Dispatch. Yep. Uh, just today, we put up a few pictures of Joshua on the roof. Uh, so you <laughs> never you know what you're. Pretty? Yeah, they're up. <laughs> yeah, you never know what you're going to get yep. uh, around here. Um, we have done photos recently. Joshua, you put up a few pictures of the door that we're restoring for the cottage over mm-hmm. there. Yeah, um, We've been doing a lot of work in preparation for the house project this year. Yep. And the dispatch is going to be the place to go to find um, photos and videos and information on that, this restoration of an 1810 cape. Uh, raising, yep. restoring, and raising the timber frame. Yeah, so it's it's disassembled. That. We had a yeah. podcast episode all about it. It's not just like fixing up an old house. Right. It is completely disassembled. It's a house everything in a trailer is right yeah. Now. It's all just disassembled and labeled. So uh, we are going from ground up, literally, uh, from the granite foundation all mm-hmm. the way up to finishing off the house, and that's what we're doing over the next, for sure, the next year. Right. And it will be, I'm sure, longer than that. So the the M and T Daily Dispatch is the place to see all of those. Um, every weekday, we have updates and uh, insights and what we're doing with that work. Um, and it's grown into a cool thing. Lots of people have good comments and yeah. uh, suggestions. People who have done work in this area and they're providing a good conversation. So, Yeah, one of the areas that's been neat about it is the resource it's become. 
if someone sends us a picture or a handful of pictures of a tool that they they don't know the, the mm. function, and if we don't know the function, we can put it on there, and all of a sudden we have people who know what it is because yep. all it takes is that one person uh, who has that knowledge, and there are quite a few of those people out there yeah. who know some obscure tools. <laughs> uh, so that's been really valuable uh, for us and for others on there. Um, so that's the the Mortis and Tenon Daily Dispatch, mtdailydispatch.com. Uh, it's, it's been a great thing, and it's definitely a growing group of people over yeah. there. Yeah, I'm excited about it. So uh, again, we wanted to talk about um, worked. Uh, we we also want to frame worked within the the context of joined and how mm -hmm. like this book came about what what the idea was for this bench guide series, right? Yeah. So um, I have a copy of joined right in front of me. It has this fancy binding which allows it to lay flat and open on your workbench without right? falling apart. Without falling apart. <laughs> Yeah, there are some some books like uh, the the old classic Eric Sloan paperbacks that <laughs> every copy you find is just shedding pages. And that's kind of <laughs> it's kind of sad, um, but the goal is that this book will not turn out like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, it, the format is is designed to be at the bench, and I I wrote the book um, both joined and worked. I wrote them uh, in a very conversational tone that is designed. I'm, I'm picturing myself sitting on your workbench right next to you. You know, that's the whole idea is saying it's like, like the okay. little shoulder angel. Yeah. It's like that or devil, whichever <laughs> or I can't right. tell, you know? Um, so yeah, so it's a super conversational, casual tone. Um, and the other piece of it is that, um, that it's full of large imagery, um, lots of big pictures, right. because what I really have found is that uh, I can open up an uh, an article and look through the pictures and say, oh yeah, I get what's going on here. And I can, you know, kind of move forward in my, my growth in that particular thing. But when, um, I see an article or a book or something that is very text heavy describing physical manual work, I'm lost. Yeah. Like, I mean, I can, I can read, I know how to read, but the thing is, um, so much of this, uh, when you're trying to convey physical skills, physical skills, uh, manual skills, dexterity, that kind of stuff was never passed down yeah. through someone reading the, a paragraph the about word. it. Right. It was always, no, watch this, do it like this. And then that person mimics it. And mimicry is the, the path to um, you know cultivating that skill yourself. Mm. So I think the closer we can get to, uh, to that model of uh, the apprenticeship model, the in-person passing down skills to someone else, to see it as big and as clear as possible and someone say, I'm doing it like this, here now you try it. Um, that is gonna be the, the best path for, uh, for learning these things. So that's what the book format is all based on. It's all trying to be as clear and straightforward and image heavy as possible with you know, all the captions and commentary and um, you know, filled out descriptions before each of the tutorials to try to get a, a bigger uh, grasp on the subject. Um, but it is supposed to be, you know, right in front of you. And we've been getting great feedback on that format. Yeah, we have. I mean, really, it when you're talking about these, um, like, uh, hand tool woodworking or any, like, physical thing that you're doing with your body, a picture really is worth a thousand words. Um, you can pick up head knowledge pretty well from the written word, and it's really valuable. But... Um, in terms of actually doing stuff with your hands and with tools, it's 
you know, we've found and many have found that the best way to learn is by seeing it. Yeah. Well, and the thing is too, you know, one of the, the, the basic core maxims for writers that they hear when someone, when you're learning about writing and someone says, okay, they say, show, don't tell. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. such an ironic thing when you're telling a writer, you have words, but you have to overcome the format to yeah. show someone and don't tell them. So it's the way you write, the way you introduce a character, say, in, in a novel or something, or the way you set up a chapter. You want to convey, give them a, a, a picture, give them a visual with words as much as possible because you're trying to overcome. If you just say, so-and-so walked into the room, mm-hmm. that's not very it's powerful, dead. but you yeah. want to show them about the door flung open, the, yeah. you know, whatever. You want to show them a picture. So I think that really... Um, puts the finger on what the the issue is where people struggle learning from an article that has, you know, 2,500 words and six pictures right? and they're all tiny. I, I mean, you, it's going to be really hard to learn something from that. Yeah. Um, so we, we, uh, this whole thing is very visual. So that's, it's been a helpful thing, I think. And the other thing is that woodworking is, is not a static activity. It's, it's not static, but it's an activity, right. meaning it's about motion. And, and the, uh, the success of a woodworking operation is about the fluidity of emotion and how you hold your hand. And so, you know, in-person is great. Video can do that really well. Um, but if you're going to do something, if you're going to write a book about woodworking, I think you need to really have lots of photography to be able to show that clearly. all As much of the subtleties as you can convey, but to have you know, one, one picture to say, and then here's a picture of me chopping a mortise. And then you go, you don't see another picture till later. Right. There are so many things you can't see and you just, you know, you're missing it. So imagine if you were blind and you were in a woodworking class Yeah. and they were telling you what they were doing. Yeah. How, how would you possibly copy that? Yeah. You, you have to feel it. it. Yeah. 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 Um, it's it's interesting because uh, Douglas Brooks, who wrote an article for us in issue 12 about um, these awesome uh, Japanese cormorant fishermen and their wooden boats uh, and building this wooden boat, he talks about and, and he has talked to us about the, um, the method of apprenticeship in Japan where uh, the task is not explained, but you are expected to observe and gain the information that you need. So that's that's exactly the opposite of what we're saying, uh, learning by the written word. It's learning by watching and seeing and all the information that you can get visually. And then, um, so it is it is observation and it's mimicry, right? right. It's, it's soaking in what you're seeing and then doing that. Yep. And so uh, it's really important to get that information visually and as well as a description of it to, yeah, to paint exactly. the picture yep. as clear as possible. Um, so some of the things that you talk about in this book, uh, so these are very practical books, but you also worked some uh, philosophy into there. Obviously there's a, a philosophical structure to it, mm-hmm. like how you work the way you do and why you work the way you do. Um, one of the things that uh, I find interesting is that you think of worked a little bit almost as a prequel to joined Mm -hmm. not necessarily that oh you have to read it first or anything like that but just in the the philosophy of of woodworking it almost comes before Mm -hmm. why is that 
Well, I mean, part of it is that it's, you know, sort of a chronological thing, of course, that you're, you're working the stock, you know, worked is all about taking rough stock from a, a, a stack of, of boards and then being able to work it into material that you could put joinery into and then build furniture out of. So it does chronologically proceed cutting joinery. Right. However, I think where most people are at, the reason I wrote the books in the order I did is because most people get into hand tools because they want to cut joinery. And so they say, I want to, you know, have this really beautiful back saw and cut, you know, dovetails by hand. And so I wanted to say, okay, here's how that's approached. Also, when you do that, you have to learn at a small scale about um, show surfaces and secondary surfaces, the reference faces, the non-reference faces, that idea that there's one face that's clean and the the reference um, and the other is inconsequential. I think that is absolutely fundamental. Yep. I think a lot of woodworkers don't even know what I'm talking about when I refer to that. Yep. And I think, oh my and they goodness. They have a hard time like, with it. That's the, that is like, you start with that. Mm-hmm. Like, this is an edge. This is wood grain and primary and secondary surfaces. Yep. Like that has to be the starting place. And a lot of woodworkers built a bunch of furniture and they don't even think about it in that way. So I think that really um, is... It's it's going to be a detriment to someone trying to learn. So I felt like okay, I'll introduce these concepts and joined, meet people where they're at. They want to do do joinery, but then basically what the second book is is answering this question that we're talking about today: Is hand tool only woodworking actually viable? Right. And I feel like that's the next step. Is someone's excited about uh, hand tools and they want to cut joinery, and they say, yeah, but. You know, right. obviously I'm not yeah. going to, you know, plane all these things by yeah. hand. Like that's I'm crazy. I'm not a masochist. I'm not a masochist, yeah. you know. And so why would you want to do that? So, but there are some people who say, wait, could I actually? Is that yeah. actually viable? Because I really like using hand tools. I, mm-hmm. I don't enjoy using machinery to, st- uh, to prep right. my stock. So if I was going to go that way, how would I go about that? Right. You know, joined is maybe, maybe it hooked some people into... Uh, hand tool woodworking and then they go well what's the next step how can i get more of this and worked as the answer to that yeah so yes it's a prequel in this in the sense that that's the work that comes before cutting joinery however it sort of experientially tends to follow you know right uh, and uh, what people are looking for yeah so um think about um this idea of efficiency like um, talking about our hand tools viable and, uh, we, and we know anyone starting out who starts with hand tools is, is, you know, you lack confidence and you're pretty self-conscious and you make little cuts and you're like, oh, it's not staying to the line and all that. And then, um, you know, through, well, through the dispatch we've seen and shared with, um, the followers over there in other places, lots of um, videos or documentation of people who have uh, an incredibly high degree of skill with hand tools Mm -hmm. and they make it look so simple and so smooth. Like there are a couple examples recently, uh, you shared about a a wooden plane maker kind of, Mm -hmm. um, that was an an inspiration or a reference for your article about plane making, who just was able to do these amazing things like with a gouge and um, different things. And then uh, someone shared a video from Morocco of these spoon carvers doing this absolutely 
insanely fast and precise and beautiful work uh, using like their feet and a block of wood and a bow saw to cut these handles of these spoons and then literally carving most of a spoon with an adze. Uh, and it's just incredible. Yeah, amazing. But so like, so to see that, you'd say, well, that, that's gotta be as fast as this, this thing can be made. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't, sure. doesn't matter what kind of tool you have. But the idea of efficiency, uh, this question comes up a lot. Like um, a lot of us have this sense that, oh, well, um, power tools are just more efficient because they're faster, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're fast. They get this task done so that we can move on to, you know, the fun woodworking stuff, right? Mm -hmm. They do the rough work. There are these tailed apprentices that do my my um, my stock prep for me, so yeah. I don't have to. So I don't have to waste my time on that, right? Right. Yeah, and I mean, so I I begin the book talking about this um, in the section uh, titled "Rethinking Efficiency," um, and I blogged about this a little bit too. Um, but my idea is, you know, I started by saying, you know, the book is titled, you know, it, it has, it refers to hand tool efficiency. And we've talked at Mortis and Tenet about efficient methods and, and hand tool work. However, I've over the years developed some misgivings about this word efficiency, hmm. because what I've realized is as I've uh, been thinking about the way people work and whatever, you know, I remember at Fine Woodworking Live, I was doing a presentation and asked who is making a living, who makes any money at their woodworking. Right. And there were 300 people in front of me. And I think it was like five people raised their hands. Ever made any money on your woodworking? Right. Five people. And that's great when people do make a living at it. But what that means is for all those people, the, uh, the, the economic variable that, you know, I'm going to lose my shirt on this if right. I don't get it done in yeah, X amount time of time, yeah. that's completely irrelevant to 295 of the 300 people there, right? And that's- That's you know, quite a large percentage. That's a large percentage. So what I wanted to, I, when I thought about this, you know, efficiency is, a, is an industrial um, productive um, sort of word that's based on this, it's like this economic definition. Right. So when people say, oh, that's not efficient, they're immediately thinking of, you know, I would lose my shirt doing it that way. Mm. And I always want to say, but but what if there's no shirt on the line? Right. Like, what if that's not a, a relevant variable? Now, of course, someone may say, I don't want to spend X amount of time building this table because, you know, whatever, my daughter's graduating college in three weeks and I need to be done. Okay, fine. That's, that's great. But I think a lot of people, uh, they accept professionals uh, criteria for assessing uh, tool choice. Yes, right. And they say, that's what I need too. And I would say, yeah. well, no, I mean, not necessarily. First, you have to identify what are your goals? What do you, are you, are you woodworking? Are you doing uh, woodworking because you like making shavings and cutting joinery? Right. Is that the primary thing? Or is it because you're trying to, you know, economize your labor so you can maximize the, um, the profit you're making. And I'm not disparaging making a profit. I'm just saying um, they're different goals. Yeah, totally. So, you know, thinking about this idea of efficiency, there's there's sort of this functional, in the woodworking world, there's this functional underlying assumption that when we use the word efficiency, we're thinking in terms of economics. Mm. But I think that's misguided. I think that's not a good way to think about it, unless you are actually trying to start a business selling things you're making. 
And so I've been thinking about that a lot and um, looking at different, um, you know, I, I like looking at the etymology of words and, you know, what's behind words? Where are these words coming from? What's the, the kind of core meaning that is inherent in, in this word? And the Oxford English Dictionary um, defines uh, efficiency as fitness or power to accomplish or success in accomplishing the purpose intended. Fitness or power to accomplish. Okay. So efficiency is about agency. Mm-hmm. The ability, the fitness, I like that word, that's really helpful, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the ability to accomplish something that you're trying to do, the power to do it. And so I think that's really important because um, what that's doing is that's, that's a very different definition than, you know, how many hours you can reduce right. the work to. Yeah. Right. And so, so as I you know put in the book, basically I was trying to say, you know, so when I'm talking about efficiency, I want to be re, I want us to be rethinking efficiency. I don't think we should throw the word out necessarily, but what I mean by efficiency is we're, we're doing this not for efficiency's sake, but for proficiency's sake. Yeah. We want proficiency, not uh, just raw economic efficiency. And so that you're able to actually, you, you're developing, you're cultivating agency. I know how to do this. I can, as I get better and better, it, people would look at me and say, hey, man, you make it look easy. Mm-hmm. Like that should be the goal. Yeah. That's, that is true efficiency. Yeah. I mean, when we're, when we're doing something for enjoyment, you know, our, our goal should not be to just do it as fast as possible and right. to utilize whatever means necessary to achieve that end, right? Like, um, you could draw a comparison between like if you enjoy going to baseball games and watching that competition, well, you could certainly do it in a much more efficient way. That's really a waste of a lot of resources. You could just run simulations on your computer of the teams and, you know, have the stats and the sabermetrics and all that and, and come up with all the outcomes. And so you will have achieved your goal of, of, you know, having winners and losers and, you know, tally the home runs and everything else, but you're losing all the, the fun and enjoyable aspects of the, when you talk about inefficient parts of it, the inefficient parts, uh, based on like, a an economic scale or, you know, like energy used or time spent. Um, those are the parts that are really enjoyable. So going and sitting and watching the baseball game from the bleachers is not efficient if you're just thinking time is money. Yeah, you should. You could be spending your time doing other things, but that's enjoyable. Yeah. Um, and so then talking about, um, I like I like that the proficiency. Um, like efficiency is defined as um, fitness or power to accomplish, and then that becomes this rewarding thing because as you gain proficiency the task becomes that much more enjoyable, mm-hmm. right? Like the first time you cut a set of dovetails, you're nervous and you feel bad about yourself and you hate yourself and you don't <laughs> want to talk to anyone after that, right? Because it- I think that was only you. You no, burn no them and you no. never want to look at them again. <laughs> so yeah, that's totally. the first time. But then you get going at it, you get better at it. You cut a set of dovetails and it's so rewarding when it comes out just right and you say okay i i'm really getting more out of this than i did at first i might even keep this one you know um so that is a that is a growing scale of of enjoyment and and skill at the same time yeah and that's that's what 
efficiency uh, gets for you. It's yep. a, a growing ability to accomplish and have success in a purpose. Well, and the thing is too, I, I guess I also think that we need to be aiming for that um, right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. So even for um, for somebody who doesn't have you know any woodworking background or say hand tool uh, background, I, I think of it you know in terms of if you're teaching when you're learning to when you learned how to ride a bicycle uh, and you don't have training wheels on, you take the training wheels off or you never had them or whatever, and you're ready to get going, you need a little bit of speed to get rolling. Yeah. Right. You can't just crawl your way. You can't sit on your bike without moving and stay up on. Or go, you know, an inch a minute or whatever, you know, that's not going to work. You're going to fall over. And so in order to even learn the skill, you kind of got to get rolling. You got to get moving. And so I think a lot of people, uh, when they're starting woodworking, they're starting not rolling. They're starting already paralyzed with fear, and so they yeah. just stutter and fall and trip, and they they just can't get going. And I want to say, you know what? You need some speed. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, and it's not like lightning speed, but so it's not like huff and puff to the finish line kind of speed. But it's like you got to roll. You, right. you got to just keep going, and you don't be paralyzed by trying to make your dovetails perfect right now. You got to complete the dovetails and yeah. then go. Oh, yeah. now I know what that was like. Now I'm going to cut another yeah, one. Yeah, because you could fiddle with them for hours with yeah. a little chisel, right? Take totally. little little tiny shavings out and get the fit. Oh, no, a little too far that way. I'll fiddle this way. Um, but that won't get you anywhere. I I think about um, kind of the, the drive behind the apprenticeship program, the Mortise and Tenant Apprenticeship Program, and how um, our, we really wanted, even more than teaching um, technique, we wanted to get... Uh, students in that program um, making a space in their lives, in their time to be spending intentional time at the sh- in the shop. Mm-hmm. Because going and working in the shop every other weekend or whatever, you don't get momentum. Yeah. Right. You don't you don't build um, that part of your life uh, as fast when you're just living for the weekend or living for every other weekend to spend a few hours in the shop. Yep. But to make the time regularly daily maybe even even if it's five minutes well yeah and i would say make the time doesn't mean you really got to commit and do an hour a day no 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 just like a few minutes a a few minutes you just have to keep the ball rolling you just got to keep going so that you can make some some real progress yeah and so that's forward progress and it's it's been um we were just talking today we heard um from a student who was um you know Last week they did uh, our first week of dovetails, and you know, as has been, as we found is typical, there are a lot of these. Um, there's a lot of mystique behind dovetails, and a lot of students felt it intimidating. And by week two, we have them cutting much wider dovetails and doing half blind dovetails, and they're saying things like, "This is this is great. I'm I'm actually gonna start thinking about some of these projects that I had in mind for someday, but didn't think I could approach it because." Yeah too many dovetails. And now they're saying, hey, I can do this. <laughs> this yeah. is great. And it's just because you get that ball rolling yeah. and get momentum. Um, again, it's not so much about having perfect technique. You can have you know, all kinds of book knowledge about technique, but actually doing it, um, seeing it and doing it is what makes it happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the other thing is that um, the, the assumption uh, I think a lot of people are wary of, or they would not be interested in thinking about how to prep stock by hand with hand saws and hand planes um, because they assume that sizing stock, 
getting stock ready is is nothing more than just the preliminary stuff you have to get out of the way to get to the actual woodworking. Right. Like that's not actually woodworking. That's not actually woodworking yeah. or yeah, it might be woodworking, but it's not the kind I yeah, like. It's not I don't enjoyable like enjoyable woodworking. And so this book is basically saying, you know, that is you're really missing out on the the vast majority of the woodworking project. Yeah. If you're going to say I only want to do the finishing touches, honestly, the, the joinery is kind of at the end of the project. It is. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's like the last 25%. Yeah, and so it's kind of sad to miss out on the stuff coming up to it unless you do not like making plane shavings if you do not like working wood then it would make sense to, to, to not do to wood expedite working. it to yeah. get it over as soon as possible yeah but if you like working wood um and you say but i i just think i keep hearing that you know work working stock by hand is just not viable it's just not efficient or it's just really miserable right i think you should uh try it i think you should uh, you know explore efficient ways to to work um, and not try to replicate the, the motions of a machine, um, mm. but just learn uh, how people actually did this stuff. And you realize, oh, wow, this is totally viable and actually kind of fun. Yeah. It feels pretty awesome to have a pile of shavings and your heart rates up and you know, you're just like, wow, I just prepped all this stuff by hand. Yeah. So I mean, I think it's really telling. Um, we, we talk a lot about four planes and the value of having a good uh, tuned up four plane in the shop because it does a huge percentage. You said, Joshua, like 80% of your work is with a four plane yep. in, in stock prep or whatever. Yep. Um, so we see, if you go around to antique antique stores and stuff, we see four planes that are just worn out, yep. right? All over the place. Uh, you don't often see other tools as worn out as the four plane. Like no. we'll find these like near mint condition trying planes and smoothers yeah. that look great. It's because the four plane is what that cabinet maker was spending his time with. Yeah. That was the most of his day was with the four plane. Yeah. And and so that is woodworking. That is a skilled pursuit and that is part of the process of making stuff by hand. Mm -hmm. Um so don't don't throw that out. Um I think it's it's a better take to to look to embrace that. Like if you're if you're struggling with that, it's just like any other skill, any kind of cutting joinery. If you're struggling, you should step back and assess and say, what do I have to learn in this area? Yeah, and I think so. In the in the book, I bring up this. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Pareto principle or the the eighty twenty principle. Um, and I think this is a really interesting thing because it um, it's it's a principle that. Um, was discovered and was people were applying it to different uh, disciplines, different fields, and they've observed this thing. So basically it's saying that if you think of 100% of the completion of a project, right, the total work it's going to take, 80% of that work, 80% of the total uh, to get to the end happens in the first 20% of the time. Uh. So in the first basically the first quarter of the total time spent, you're 80% of the way there. Mm -hmm. And so to get that last little bit of perfection, th this is the finessing stage, the fine tuning, the yeah. put it together or whatever. That is where the efficiency just starts nosediving. Right. That's the last 80% of your time is spent on the last little 20% of work that has to happen. So that's where you can really get into fussing. Yep. You know, so you hit this point where 
the first quarter of, of the project is just sailing through. You're just getting a ton of stuff done and you got everything ready and it looks really good and it's all there on the bench and you're okay, all right. And then you get to that final fussing stage and it just, you know, takes forever and you're nose diving. So I think that's a really important thing to think about because it then the the reason I thought of this is because it just like a light bulb went on for me because I thought that is that principle explains pre-industrial furniture. Hmm. Because what you're seeing in the, the backsides and the undersides is all the rough work. Yeah. That's the 80%. Yeah. The tree you know, bar that's is still a on the underside of the mm-hmm. shaker table. Yeah. That, that's a, you just got a B on that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so they only then would push past that 80% of work for what really mattered for the exterior surfaces. So I think especially in um, vernacular work, looking at, you know, the, the country furniture maker, someone who's not work, someone who's working outside of a guild sim- uh, system, especially um, where they weren't regulated from outside as to what you must take it to. Someone who was working for themselves would say, you know, I got it to 80% in the short amount of time. Mm. Now at this point, I'm just going to touch up what has to look good. Mm-hmm. And that I think, um, not that somebody everybody who did that intuitively or they like knew the Pareto principle, right? but they lived it and they saw it and they said, oh, I realize, you know, where I need to spend time, where it actually matters. And then where it doesn't, doesn't. why would you spend 80% of the total project on the last little fine final bit? Um, and so they knew when to quit. Yeah. And so that's, I think really important because I think, um, a lot of woodworkers assume that they have to work like a machine. Yeah. But we don't want, the goal is not to work like a machine. Yeah, we're not right? machines. Right. So I think that's what the foundation of this book is, is it's trying to help people who don't want to work like a machine or assume that you do have to work like a machine and they want to be free from that mentality so that they can actually do a viable hand tool only work. And part of that for years, you know, at Mortis and Tenon, we've been publishing um, every single issue, we have a, a photo essay of a piece of period furniture. And we get we get emails. I just got a, a note the other day from somebody who was saying, you know, this is so, it changed my woodworking. Yeah. You guys over the years showing me what period hand tool work actually looks like enabled me to let go of my, you know, um, hard grasp on this high level precision and realizing I want to work by hand. Yeah. And so I don't need to grasp onto NASA tolerances or yeah. whatever, you know? Um, so I think that's the what undergirds this book. It's um, stuff we've talked about through M&T for a while, but I wanted to have to really focus on that particular thing in this book and flesh it out and not just say that it is the case, but show how it's the case and mm-hmm. what it looks like and how you would pull that off in a way that actually really uh, can be done today. Yeah. Um, I remember a story early on in, um, in the life of M&T. Somebody had told us that uh, Roy Underhill was, he had a, a copy of, was it issue two with the, the dovetails? So he had a, yeah. a copy of um, this article. It was basically just a photo essay of period dovetails. Joshua, you had mm-hmm. gone down, that was from the Yale Furniture Study, yep. and just pulled open drawers and taken shots of the dovetails. And it was yep. this whole... Uh, you know, I forget how many pages just of lines of photos of dovetails. And Roy had, had taken that and, you know, folded it open on his workbench and he was just showing it to the students saying, look, this is how this stuff was made. 
And yep. so that was like a really valuable resource. And I was, uh, it was super exciting to hear that at, at the time, just that this is this kind of stuff, this getting this information out there about how stuff was made based on these antiques really can change the way people approach woodworking. Yeah. Um, so wanna, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, so, I mean, in the, um, in the book, what the, my, my assumption is that the reader wants to really dive into woodworking. It really wants to know wood and to know tools and to be able yeah. to, uh, you know, wrestle with uh, this, this craft and not just stand back and say, you know, what's the fastest way to get from A to Z or whatever? Yeah. How do I complete a project as fast as possible? But the, uh, I wrote to those people who say, well, actually, how do I get the most out of this? Yeah. How do I have the most fun and get the most engaged with this material? Yeah. Because as I put in the book, I say, you know, to know wood, you have to wrestle it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you're going to say, especially if you're going to say, well, I'll just smooth plane it uh, at the end, but I'll send it through the machines. You send it through the machines, you get it all prepped, and then you're ready to smooth plane. Yeah. And you're saying, hi, my name is Joshua. Yeah. I've never met you I know before, nothing about you. But I'm ready to, you know... Yeah. And I feel like you just miss this whole yeah. piece of it that, that would inform and helps you to understand what's going on with this board and how to utilize it best. So I'm not trying to make it this weird, you know, mystical sort of thing. I'm just saying there is so much interaction. If, if you enjoy interacting with wood and learning it and, to, you know, discovering its secrets, as I put it uh, in the book, then you're really going to be shortcutting yourself if you're not, you know, touching it with a, a hand plane until... Mm -hmm. you know, the very final smoothing passes. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, the process a few years ago of us getting all these uh, these wide pine boards that you had had um, stacked and stickered in your yard and pulling them out and, and uh, planing them. And we learned so much about grain direction and, and knots, especially knots. Yeah, knotty, 18-inch wide, knotty, flat-sawn yeah. pine. It's... It is an education. I think that that is a great way to put it. But but really, like you understand, once you've gone over the surface of the board and you've gotten it planed to where you want it, you really know that piece of wood. You really, yeah. you get a feel for how that tree grew, which is an amazing amount of information. You know, like a, a machine doesn't care about any of that. Mm -hmm. And a machine would rather uh, inadvertently destroy a board um, rather than learn how to work with a knot, mm -hmm. right? And that's what that's what machines do often. Um, if you just set up a jig or something, let's say you want to uh, cut some dovetails, so you set up your your dovetail jig for your router, and if you've got a big knot right there, well, the router is going to try and cut all that anyway. It doesn't really care. Um, but if you are working with hand tools, that requires a knowledge of the materials. Yeah, exactly. And it requires like a. Um, uh, not just that, but the ability to, to listen to it and to work with it and to adapt. You have to sometimes change your plans a little bit. And um, we've seen quite often, you know, in, in a drawer or something like that where the person making it had this piece of wood that wasn't ideal, but they made it work because that's what they had. And they changed their dovetail layout to work around. Just on not, that one joint. Just on one corner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to work with that, which is... Uh, which is awesome and great and really shows a lot of knowledge and understanding of, again, efficient woodworking. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, you know, so I started talking about sourcing, uh, sourcing 
lumber sourcing boards and that kind of thing. And, you know, how do you, uh, get from the stack of lumber into your shop? And, you know, I think one little piece that I was thinking about when you were talking was this sort of scientific approach to it and Mm -hmm. wanting to make sure everything is, um, is all exactly perfect the way it needs to be. And so Mm -hmm. you, you think like, get out the moisture meter, right? Read the moisture content. And then, you know, I need to look at a formula to predict how many days I should leave it at certain, you know, relative humidity inside of my shop and, you know, on and on when really what, what, what the goal with that is, it's not just, I mean, some people are just curious and that's, that's fine. But I also think there's like this, there's this, when people are saying like, you know, they want some sort of life hack or some sort of hot tips or tutorials, Mm. or how do I, how do I get around actually just interacting with something and learning how it works? Right. I want to know, give me the, the, um, the seven tips I need to know about this one thing. And then I'll just apply that formula into real life and Mm -hmm. expect, you know, the, the right output, the right outcome. And so I think, you know, looking at moisture meter type woodworking, uh, is going to, it's going to paralyze people and they're never going to stop and just say, does this board feel wet? Yeah. When I, when I cut it, (laughs) is it like moist? Is it cool inside? Is it, uh, and then also, you know, you just think about like for me having lumber stored outside and, and covered, I, it makes me aware of what time of the year is this? Mm-hmm. What's the humidity going? I mean, was it raining yesterday? Has it been raining for the past few days so yeah. that the, the ambient moisture is high and that's going to affect this board? And therefore, I know that next week I'm going to have this time off and so I'm going to need this board at this time. So when I should bring them into the shop and all of that is part of woodworking. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes um, people uncomfortable because they have to pay attention to all that stuff. Right. But I think that is, as we talked about in the other podcast about craftsmanship, that's all part of craftsmanship is knowing wood, knowing this particular board and what it needs. Um, and that's, what's exciting. Yeah. I mean, we, you can read in all these books off the top of my head, I think of woodworking in Estonia, um, how, uh, people in the past and past centuries had, had almost these, these ritualistic ways of, of engaging with wood. I mean, it, it, it was not almost ritualistic. It was ritual. You would, for a certain application, you'd only cut the wood during a certain time of year or, um, you know, during a certain phase of the moon mm-hmm. or whatever. And yeah. then you would, uh, that would help you to get the result you want when you have the, the finished dried product ready for uh, making into a wheel hub or, um, you know, a yoke for your oxen or whatever. Um, based, you know, that was that was built around uh, a real knowledge, uh, a deep understanding of those materials, and uh, that kind of that kind of knowledge is, you know, it's pretty rare these days. It's it's more like it's an art than a science. It is, yeah, and and that's that's just a really wonderful thing that hand tool woodworkers get to uh, to grow in that that understanding of the art of of knowing wood and knowing what it does uh, and how it works. But you used uh, a couple funny distinctions. Uh, you kind of uh, chased these two uh, pursuits of woodworking to their logical ends, uh, you know, kind of reductio ad absurdum. So you you talk about engineer woodworkers, and then you talk about the monastic or ascetic woodworkers. Uh, yeah. What are what are those two about? Well, yeah. So I, I think about um, if we're thinking about these two kinds of woodworkers. 
Um, and no, I don't have any one particular person in mind who fills the, each of these roles. But um, the engineer woodworker is uh, the person who wants everything controlled and figured out and planned in advance and you know, really enjoys reading every article on a topic and debating with other people who also haven't done it yet but have really good <laughs> right. ideas about it. And right. they want everything to be um, you know, to the... Um, to the, the 0.5 uh, degree to be able to get the, just exactly the way they want it. So it's, it's an engineer. So a lot of woodworkers are engineers. And so they, they're interested in woodworking. But I think we've heard from a lot of people who are so relieved to do something else mm-hmm. other than their day job. But a lot of woodworkers, a lot of woodworking engineers take their day job into their workshop. Right. And they think I should approach furniture making the exact same way I approach all the other stuff I do as an engineer. They apply those, those same tolerances. Yeah. And so it's, they're just doing their job in their hobby time in their, in their shop Mm -hmm. time. And I think, um, a lot of people are fascinated by that, but also a lot of people feel like, well, this is just what it has to be like. Right. And so there's the engineer woodworker who can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to do all of that by hand Mm -hmm. because, you know, we know all the machinery. We know how fast this stuff can be spit out. Why would we go through all of the pain right. to, to produce what to I'm doing with the all this machinery? the perfect lumber that I think I need. Right. And then you have the monastic woodworker, yeah. the ascetic. Yeah. You know, there's the asceticism. The woodworking of, monks. The woodworking asceticism that says, oh, I totally agree. It is a long, painful path. It's an arduous mountain, and that's to why it's to. so glorious. Yeah. And I just, I, I love doing it slow, and I love just the how hard and physical and painful it is. And they get this sort of like spiritual satisfaction from the brutality of hand tools. <laughs> and even if it's not physical labor, they would say, no, no, like maybe they're not doing it um, hard and aggressive and forceful, but they're saying, I know it takes a really long time. Mm-hmm. And that's so satisfying, right? And I just take all day resawing this board, mm-hmm. and I, you know. So I think they're both both of those caricatures are are assuming that the outcome must be machine perfection, right? And I'm saying uh, that's it's, not actually how hand tool it's ironic needs that to they're, be. They're working to the same tolerance. Yeah, they're working you know? to the same tolerances. They just disagree. Mm-hmm. They have different perspectives on the painful path that it's taking them. Mm-hmm. Some people don't want that painful path and some people do want the painful path right. because it's you know somehow more noble. Right. I'm saying, why would you take a painful path? Yeah. Why don't you do it in a way that you really like making shavings, but if you can change your, um, your expectations about what the outcome has to be, then you can have fun the whole way yeah. and it's efficient and you're able to kind of sail through the work and you're doing it only with hand tools. And if you do not like using machinery, then you're going to say, this is great. I don't have to do something I don't want to do. Right. Um, so it kind of frees you up from this machine-like precision and regularity that is sort of the assumption of 20th and 21st century woodworking. Yeah, we all, uh, you know, the, the idea is that we have to aspire to this like Ikea level designed on a computer built by robots uh, sort of perfection inside and out of every surface, right? Completely devoid of any personality or fingerprints, right? Mm-hmm. Of yep. of human craftsmanship. It has to be perfect and perfectly square, four squared, and and everything is as if it was spit out by a machine. And so 
yes, that is a painful way to go if you're going to try and go that way. But why would you? And, and I just, I wanted to be clear about it, not to pick on anyone. And again, I don't have any particular people in mind. It's just sort of a caricature. But I wanted to be really clear that that's not the, I'm not arguing for asceticism in woodworking or, mm-hmm. you know, this painful monastic, the spiritual value of doing it the long and hard way. Right. I am not interested in that whatsoever. I don't want to do it the long and hard way. I want to do it by hand proficiently. Yeah. And so um, that's what this is all about is trying to pursue, well, hmm, how, how would you do that? Yeah. So, how, how, how was it done? How did they do that? So yeah. beautifully and so, um, you know, pretty quickly and uh, seeming to uh, at times even enjoy the work. Like, how is that? <laughs> how can you do that? Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, it's so it's it's not those two extremes. It's between those two. It's it's you know going between the horns of the dilemma, so <laughs> to speak. Yeah. Um. So, so you you go and uh, tackle all these different areas of of rough work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we you talk about the rough sawing, rough planing, uh, why you should have a hatchet at your bench. Yep. Right. Riving even riving. Not even for green woodworking necessarily. Sure, riving right. your your air dried or even kiln dried stock yep. uh, to get it to down to dimensions quickly. Um, so that is a different take. And then, not only that, but then sometimes even leaving those hatchet marks. Yep. On the piece. Yeah, and so in this book, I have also included um, several different uh, images of uh, pre-industrial work showing these tool marks and just basically trying to get people to convey, I'm trying to convey the tolerances, you know, how flat is flat? How smooth is smooth? Um, where is it appropriate to leave, you know, hatchet marks, as you said? Because mm-hmm. it is it is appropriate in places to do that. Um, but I think a lot of people don't, can't really follow. Like, so you mean I can like have the front of my drawer all hacked up? Well, no. Nope. No, no, no. But the back of the drawer you can. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you know, showing that is really valuable, I think, for people. Yeah, totally. I I mean, and again, going back to uh, just some of the lessons that antiques can teach you, um, obviously, you don't put hatchet marks or ads marks on a tabletop. A tabletop is a, a, a show surface that will be used and should be as smooth as you can do with hand tools. But then the underside is a mm-hmm. completely different story. Yeah. And, uh, we've seen tables that are just extreme in their difference mm-hmm. from top to underside. Yep. Uh, but that is, um, that's an efficient understanding of, of uh, good workmanship in yep. that, that table. Like what's, what needs to be perfect, you know, in quotes, is perfect. And um, in fact, the secondary surface is also perfect because it's perfectly fulfilling all it needs to do. Yep. Um, I think, you know, so that's why I wanted to tackle hatchet work and riving and that kind of stuff, because I I truly do believe that a hatchet is an essential tool for a hand tool shop. Mm -hmm. Um, Unless, I mean, if you are only using machines to prep all of your stock, then you would not need a hatchet. Mm. If you don't use machines to prep all of your stock, you need a hatchet. Yeah. You really do. (laughs) Um, But even, I, I would say, you know, there's, there are different tasks um, that I just, I, it is faster to just quick grab the hatchet mm-hmm. and then, you know, take, um, you know, 
10, 20 seconds to hew that little quarter of an inch away and then yeah. take two passes with the foreplane and you're, you know, to the races, uh, ready to go. Uh, I think that's a really important skill to have. So that kind of stuff, I think a lot of people would assume is like, oh, that's for like green woodworking and right. stuff. It is, but not only. Yeah. Um, you know, green woodworking is is talking about having moisture inside the wood, but some of that stuff is is kind of partially dried too, and you're yeah. incorporating into chair making, which is also part of its furniture making. And so um, I, I think if we just say, oh, these tools are for that thing way over here, and furniture making is this other thing. Right. I mean, Peter Nicholson and um, Joseph Moxon both talk about having a hatchet for joiner's work. Yeah. Joiner's work. Yeah. And so, you know, when when Peter Nicholson is in, talking in 1812 about joiners who do the interior, uh, you know, like the sash work and the all the trim and that kind of stuff, yeah. when he's talking about um, how important a hatchet is in their work, I'm saying, I think we need to pay attention to that yeah. and really get uh, comfortable using a hatchet because that's when you're going to start seeing that stuff unlock. You use the coarsest tool as long as possible. Yeah. And you only move to the, the the more refined tool when you have to, when you can't be any more refined. So Yeah, and uh the that funny example that um Moxon uses where he he describes, you know, the use of the the four plane at at length and then his description of Very, the smoothing plane, which we hold in this high high regard today for the perfectly fine shavings and getting a perfect surface, he just like has one sentence. Has for one it. sentence, yeah. So uh, that, that shows where the priorities were um, and maybe should be. Yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to do that, and I wanted to tackle um, work holding, um, and I broke it up into two categories that over the years I've sort of, that's been helpful for me to think about, and I've settled on these two ways of work holding. Um, one uh, we've come to call free work holding, mm -hmm. and the other is restrained work holding. And free work holding is uh, stock that is not held in a vice. It's not yeah. locked down. You can it's pick not, it up at any time. It's just working stock against a, some sort of stop, whether it's a, a bench hook or against the wall or against, you know, whatever it is. Also using your body. You know, I, I'm often pinning stock. One end is pinned against the bench hook and the other is into my gut mm -hmm. or my chest. And I'm, you know, scribing a line or something. And so I think that's a really important thing for a hand tool woodworker to uh, to get a get a handle on yeah. is to be able to say, okay, I'm able to do a lot of work without messing around with vices yeah. and without messing around with you know holdfasts. And so then restrained woodworking is saying, well, but sometimes yeah. it's good to have a a vice you can just yeah. immobilize this board. Um, and holdfasts, I, I think you know in certain situations they are useful. And so. I spend a good amount of time showing these different approaches, free work holding and restrained work holding to show how important it is for an accomplished artisan to be fluent in both of those ways of work holding um, and in which situations they really shine. Yeah. I mean, we're not all owl breed able to cut dovetails in a board horizontal sitting on a sawhorse holding our dovetail saw with our pinky. Most of us actually are not like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's really nice to be able to stick that board in a vise mm, and hold yeah. it secure. Um, so yeah, there there are some really great uh, examples of work holding. You know, uh, like sitting on a board to plane it and like utilizing your 
your body weight obviously at the saw bench which is probably a, a body weight type of exercise that most people are are familiar with um, but you ask a few a few good questions about like each circumstance of work holding you encounter mm -hmm. you give a, a list of questions like to think about when you're trying to figure out how to best hold the stock you say what's the simplest way to hold it is it secure enough to work safely and effectively and is it quick to release and adjust and then you go you take those questions and you apply them to different operations and uh, just get get everybody thinking about um about the 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 best means of work holding for a given operation yeah and so i think even in that list of questions you know what's the simplest what's safe and effective and what is quick to adjust or mm -hmm. release um, all of that is still, I'm saying, I think advice is really useful for cutting dovetails, but think about the way that you can release that vice as fast as possible. Right. Because if you have a really coarse um, thread count on on the screw yeah. for your vice, then it's, it's going to really be fast. that much more efficient. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, a big part of my, my interest is trying to be able to work efficiently and not be stuck and to have things, um, have my work slowed down. Mm -hmm. We've talked before about uh, Mihai Chiksent Mihai and his um, his idea of this flow state. This idea, when you know, when you're working and you're just in the groove and everything's clicking and it's just everything's in the right place and everything comes together. And you know, when you think about working in the groove and being able to really uh, have the planets align like that, right? Um, what I talk about in the book is how important it is to that. Some people think that that kind of moment just happens to me. Right. Like I can't do anything to make a conducive environment to cultivate that. It just, it just happened to be a good day. It just happened to be a good day. The planets aligned and everything just clicked. I actually don't believe that's why that happens. I think there are certain situations that you can set yourself up for that kind of thing happening. Mm. And there are certain situations that you're asking for failure. Yeah, you're you're condemning your, <laughs> yeah, your efforts. So some ways of working are more conducive to a flow, a, a good workflow, and some are just so clunky and mm -hmm. so obnoxious that you're going to never be able to get in the groove, right? And so I think the closer you can get to free work holding or, you know, unrestrained work holding, then you're going to be able to be in the flow and you're breaking, you're not breaking up the flow of work. Mm -hmm. um, and the, every time I'm tightening and loosening and adjusting and, you know, messing with stuff. It's just, it's shifting my, my awareness to, um, this, you know, adjusting the clamp or doing this kind of thing over here when really I should be focused on getting this board, you know, moving along. Mm. And so that's kind of my goal is, you know, this efficiency mindset, this free work holding is not just, you know, showboating. It's not just showing off, you know, look, ma, no vice. Right. It's not like that. It's just saying, I don't want to get stuck messing and fiddling with stuff and fiddling with all these jigs and clamps and devices to try to keep it immobile. I would rather learn how to work the stock free. Yeah. I just put it against the bench hook. Yeah. Yeah. And a, a lot of people um, struggle with planing against the bench hook and, you know, you make it quite clear that, hey, this is a skill. Mm -hmm. But once you, like, like any operation, you learn the skill and then you get to to bask in the glow of the efficiency of that form of work holding. Yeah. Like you get to enjoy it once you've learned the skill of planing at a bench hook. Yeah. And then someone sees you do that and they try it. They go, yeah. wow, you make How it look did easy. You do that? Yeah. And you say, 
Well, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's the pursuit is you, you want to, that's when you have the skill when it actually is, like I would say, I struggled playing against a bench hook when I first was doing it, but now I would say it, it does feel easy, mm-hmm. you know, um, that's, and I think any of us who work at anything over time, we develop that skill and it, it kind of is easy. Um, and so that's what I want to encourage people to do is to not be fettered by, really clunky ways of working. I want to say, choose the way that's freed up and the potential for this free flow of, you know, making it look easy. Because when you do uh, get that skill, when you're, you know, riding the bicycle, as it were, it just looks like, yeah, it makes, they look make, you know, riding a bike look easy. Well, you can do the same with woodworking. Yeah. Um, you go through a, a case study um, you, you basically then walk your reader through like how you would go about doing this task of, of tapering a, a table leg um, mm-hmm. with all this, and, and you focus on workflow. I think that that's the last chapter of the book, mm-hmm. right, is the workflow chapter. Yep. So you have a list of um, not, it's like mindsets, like things to keep yep. in mind when you, when you approach a project. Like this is this is how you look at workflow from um, an angle of, of efficiency by that Oxford English <laughs> definition, yeah. right? Having proficiency and in, in the ability to complete. Um, you talk about things like um, forgetting the cut list, right? Set mm-hmm. that aside. You talk about labeling your work and the, the, the best way to do that to avoid confusion. Obviously, it's a really good way to label your work by leaving one surface for plain rough, because that's... And the other one is smooth. An unmistakable it's, it's label. It's pretty hard to mess that up when yep. you're laying out your joinery. Um, and so you also talk about uh, the value of things like templates and story sticks. Mm-hmm. Like, is that... That's especially for batch production? Yeah, I mean, in batch production stuff, um, yeah. And I think that what I wanted to do with that chapter is just kind of hit the highlights of, you know what is the sort of mentality and mindset as I'm approaching this? If I'm thinking from beginning to end of a project, what are the things I should keep in mind? You know, sourcing stock, I talk about where you can get lumber in very unconventional ways, I think, actually. It's not just, well, you know, here's the lumber yard supplier list. But it's how you actually get connected with some really great local stuff. Um, All the way down to, you know, like um, there's a a section on vary your tasks. And I think a lot of people assume that you know if you're going to do all this stock prep then you you block out a few days and you roll up yeah. your sleeves and you you know you muscle through it you muscle through it it's going to be really brutal but it's going to be i think it'll be worth it no i mean i i'd say do that for an hour and a half get some boards ready and then start laying out some joinery and do something else mm-hmm. go sharpen your chisels go break it up and that i think is a really important thing for um you know, whatever sustainability or whatever yeah. this 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 endurance to be able to work through a whole project. I never, ever, ever have once done all of my stock prep right at the beginning. Right, and so then why you have the a... heck would you do that? <laughs> yeah, with, uh, with by hand. If you have a machine, then it, of course it makes sense. You, right, you really it would you would want to do that. But by hand, why would you do that? Yeah, you just prep what you need, then make that part of it. Work into sub assemblies is another thing mm-hmm. I talk about. Um, and so you want to be able to vary the tasks and and work through this in a way that's enjoyable. So you can maximize the enjoyment of the whole thing. Yeah. Because for the 295 other people in the room, yeah, we just do it because we love it. Yeah. And 
you can love it and make a living at it for sure. But some of us, that's the only reason we're doing this right. is because we, love, we it. love it. So let's just maximize that. That's what this book is all about is trying to get more time, uh, actually doing the parts we like the using hand planes and mm. interacting with the material in a way that is viable. That's not just drudgery and to earn you, you know, some sort of spiritual points with the right the ascetic woodworkers but to say hey it actually isn't that big of a deal it's not it's not out of reach yeah so yeah i'm excited about it it's sort of a the book is um sort of a culmination of a lot of what i've been thinking about uh, over these years at uh, mnt and what i hope what i've been exploring and wanting to communicate to readers and so this is sort of my real practical hands-on tutorial saying okay Roll up your sleeves. Let me show you. Let yeah. me show you how to do this. Yeah, it's going to be great. And uh, that bundle uh, for Worked and Joined is um, available in the store right now. And we should be seeing that book uh, here within a couple months. Yep. As soon as it's I'm done really printing excited. and boxed up. Can't wait to see it. Uh, and we can't wait to get it out to everyone who orders it. Uh, so thank you all for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below. And we will see you next time.